What's up, Gravel family? I'm Sophia. And I'm Jason. And this is the Gravel Family Podcast. The Gravel Family Podcast is an encouraging space to motivate more people to get on their bikes and enjoy gravel. We're going to share a variety of stories from hometown pirates to the top tier pros. We're also going to share training tips and insights on gravel worlds and other events, as well as answer your questions that arise through your training season. We are so excited you're here. Welcome to the Gravel Family. What's up, Gravel family? We're back for another episode. I'm Jason. And I'm Sophia. And we've got a little bit different of an episode today. It's going to be a little bit more technical, but it's all like really great things to help you prepare for your race. So uh, whether you're doing 50 miles or you're doing 500 miles, the, the information in here will, will really help you out. So yeah. um, without further ado, maybe the smartest person we've ever had on our podcast. Well, <laughs> maybe we'll see. We'll see about that. But, uh, so he was the technical director for zip for 15 years, uh, before he is now the owner of Silka, which is one of the longest, uh, companies in cycling you've probably heard of their pumps but they have so much so much more he's also a father of two and a husband uh so we'll get into that family aspect a little bit too but welcome to the podcast josh portner hey thanks for having me absolutely so before we get really far into this what's your what's your background in how did you get into the cycling world uh from where you were with multiple engineering degrees and then now being the owner of silka Oh, gosh. Start at the beginning, huh? Um, yeah. yeah I, all the way back. <laughs> I, I can pinpoint the moment. Um, it was 1989. I was like in eighth grade. Yeah, eighth grade. And I was at a friend's house and his dad had a copy of Bicycling Magazine on the uh, tabletop and it had Greg LeMond winning the tour on that Ooh. amazing Botechia Chronostrata time trial bike. <laughs> And I just remember awesome. being shocked, like, what is that? I want that. And uh, and so I read the magazine and went to, you know, the, the bookstore the next month and bought a mag, right? I mean, it's the old days, like, there's no computers. We couldn't look this stuff up. And I just totally fell for the sport. And so by the time I was 15, 16 years old, I was kind of like in the national team program and doing that and trying to just race and go to school and, and all that. And then when I was 17, I signed a contract in France and went and raced in France for two seasons and absolutely got my head kicked in. Um, <laughs> hey, but you did it. You know, oh, yeah. It was, you know, I, I always said, like, like, looking back, it was, like, such an amazing experience in my life. Living it was absolute torturous hell. Um, but, yeah, it, it, it was a, a great learning experience. And then I... I that was like 1996. So, you know, I, I joke that every every epic is is peak drug in cycling, but that mid 90s was like truly like pinnacle of peak drug in cycling. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and um, and so, you know, I mean, I, I saw stuff that was just, you know, you couldn't believe. Um, and and still today, you know, I can can take drink a couple of beers and tell some stories and people are like no way you know people didn't do that like oh yeah everybody did it um so I, I came back change and I, really quickly here yeah, yeah right this could get be really a gossip good. one um, <laughs> but no I, I you know I think it, it became clear to me quickly that you know you and I think you talked to any of us of that generation you got there and and you were either you either went you know it was a fork in the road you either went down the one path <laughs> Or you went down the other path. Um, and I was lucky. I was, you know, reasonably smart kid. I was pretty good at math. And 
Um, I'd finished high school two years early, um, which really allowed me to focus on racing and all that and, and uh, kind of all those things. And so I came home and, and went to college. But, you know, I, I think when when the adults of today, you know, look in at these pro sports and, and want to judge the people for the decisions they're making, it's like, you know, hey, had I been a poor farm kid in Slovenia with no other option in life and I made it to the to that stage and and had to pick the fork in the road i guarantee you i i would have picked the other fork right i mean there's no hey you can go back to the farm or or be famous and and do all this other stuff like yeah you know 17 year old kid (laughs) yeah i'm not gonna lie you know i um so yeah i i feel really fortunate that i i had options and opportunities and i came home burnt out on bicycles and and got an engineering degree and went into car racing which is you know, basically like cycling with way more money and the doping is all <laughs> technology based, <laughs> right? The, the doping there is just called cheating. Um, yeah. And then very fortuitously in 1990, early 99, I had taken a job at a race car constructor here in Indian. In the parking lot, I met a guy named Andy Ording and he had just bought the bankrupt uh, at the time Zip company. Um, and was restarting it next door to where I was working, and we hit it off right away. And, uh, like, you know, he's, he's like family from, you know, I think minute five. And, uh, you know, I joined Zip when it was six people basically restarting itself. And, yeah, we had a hell of a ride. That was great. So that was kind of how I found my way into the sport, then out of the sport, then back into the sport again. <laughs> That's awesome. So before we kind of get into like you getting involved with Silka, like Silka has been around since 1917 or 1915. Yeah, 1917. Over 100 years old and one of the oldest cycling companies. Like what's the kind of brief history of a long history of (laughs) of Silka? So interestingly, I guess a little bit similarly. So this guy, Felice Sacchi, uh, Italian engineer, uh, World War II era uh, aerospace engineer, um, was one of the first people kind of coming out of that war generation experienced in the plastics of the time, which would be celluloid, right? And so you look at the Silka was actually, uh, an acronym that is like the Society Italiano Liguria Celluloida, you know, whatever. It, it basically, it, as much as I hate to admit it, um, the acronym roughly translates to like Italian plastic factory, <laughs> Oh, <laughs> which, you know, which is like very non-sexy and cool for our industry. Um, but this guy, he was super smart and was experienced in celluloid because there was no plastic. Um, and he knew how to work with that. And then he had this concept of, if you think of the, the pumps up until that era, they would use leather plungers where they would essentially stack leather discs on a shaft and you would compress them between two nuts until they swelled out and formed an airtight seal. But when you pumped, it pumped both directions. And so when you made, when you built a pump, you had to have two check valves, right? And the check valve is like a one-way valve, like it, it flows one way, but not the other. And the check valve is a pretty expensive piece of the pump, especially of the, the era, because it's a high precision part and they were made from brass and um, you had to have really controlled machined mating surfaces and so this guy comes up with the concept of making instead of a stack of flat leather washers let's cup the leather washer like an umbrella 
And when we put it in the tube and you push down on it, the air swells the umbrella out and seals against the wall of the tube. But when you lift it, the air pressure flexes it inward and the air can pass around. And so now you could make a pump that only had one of these expensive valves. Um, and so he, he patents this uh, and they go on to, I mean, you know, we've got catalogs from the 20s and 30s. Um, if you bought a Ducati, it came with a Silka pump. If you had a Fiat, there was a Silka pump in the trunk. Um, you know, every wow. famous Italian cyclist ever, there's a photo of them riding with the Silka pump, um, pumping with the Silka pump. Um, and then we get to World War II, and they get absolutely, they get taken over by Mussolini in the, the big factory nationalization, and then they get completely raised to the ground by Allied bombing. Um, and so fortunately, Felice lives. Um, and in 46, he starts building the, the company. By 47, they're selling stuff. Um, but now the company changes in that it's post-war Italy. It's broke, right? I mean, it is poor as can be. And their cars and motorcycles are few and far between. But bicycles and scooters are everywhere. Um, and so we've got catalogs from the 50s and 60s that are, you know, they're making Vespa parts and all, you know, pumps for every bicycle brand. And then it really takes off in the 70s. You, you think, I guess the part of the history here, you know, it, Italy wasn't making better bicycles than the rest of the world, right? I mean, they, they were at the top of the craft. But what they really had was this amazing export advantage because they had this terrible currency, right? If you're, if you're old like me, <laughs> you remember going to Italy and the lira was like 2,000 lira per dollar. Yeah. And you could buy a Coke for like 500 lira, <laughs> you know? And you do the math. Oh that's like 25 cents, you know, like, how does this work? Um, you know, or if you're old like me, you, there was a book called Europe on $5 a day. <laughs> and, and you oh could literally gosh. go to Italy. And you could travel and eat and stay in a hostel on $5 a day. That's incredible. Um, and so what happens is coming into the 70s, cycling starts to boom. And Italy has this unbelievable export advantage because of this currency. And so all these Italian brands are the first uh, big European brands to export. Right. And so that's part of the story, you know, not not a knock against any of the, the, the brands or the bicycles or the companies. But, you know, that's why, you know, you had these amazing builders in England who are all gone. Um, but a lot of the, the great builders of Italy are still with us. And export was the was the reason. And so Silka benefited from that tremendously. Um, you know, if you've ever seen the movie Breaking Away, um, which is like one of the classic, oh my God, you have to go see it. It's a Disney movie from like the early 80s, but it's oh, about oh, a kid. I can, in, I can dig some Disney. All right. Oh, yeah. It's, so it's a kid in, in, in Bloomington, Illinois, who falls in love with bike racing and pretends he's Italian and wants to be a, I mean, it's just an amazing story. Um, but in, in the movie, he meets his heroes, the Italians, and he gets into a breakaway with them. And the head Italian actually pulls off his Silka frame pump and crashes the guy. <laughs> Oh my God! <laughs> so, so, so I like to say that we're the only sporting good that plays the role of a villain in a major motion picture. You guys um, definitely have that title in the bag. Yeah, yeah, you know, amongst other things. So, um, but so fast forward, um, you know, Italy has this double whammy of they join the WTO or they join uh, the we go into the Euro right as China joins the WTO. Uh, TO, World Trade Organization. And you, through the 2000s, just have this absolute pummeling of very inexpensive but nice-looking pumps coming out of China. At the same time, Italy goes into like 200% inflation. Um, 
you know, because they've moved from this lira currency to the euro, right? So now they're treated like Germany, but they're not Germany, you know? Um, and so I know at the time, like when I was at Zip, we used to make all the carbon fiber cranks for Campagnolo. And so I was at Campagnolo constantly uh, working on projects. And I actually lived through that where, you know, a, a beer in Italy, you know, went from sub dollar to, you know, two dollars <laughs> right i mean yeah. it was yeah. it, you you could it's in real time change. feel it yeah and for the so for the people on the ground it was a huge change what you think from the export perspective you know if i was selling you something for 50 cents and now it's two dollars whoo that's a th- that's a hard story and so that was the beginning of the end for silka um i was fortunate while i was at zip to meet the owner claudio who was the grandson of the founder um and he sold us the little crack pipes the little valve adapters that you use to put air in your disc wheel. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so, you know, he was, you know, Zip, we were built like a race car company, right? We're here in Indiana. We're in the middle of all this manufacturing. Everything we made, we made. You know, we're not, you know, your typical bike industry companies like, yeah, I got six guys in Taiwan that make that for me. But, you know, we, we did it all. And um, so we had very few industry uh, kind of connections like that. And so when I went to the trade show, you know, I'd always go see Claudio because he's like one of the two other people that I directly did business with. Um, yeah. And so we sold zip in 2008 to SRAM and I was kind of managing, running it for SRAM and learning the difference between a small company and a bigger company and, um, trying to figure out what I was going to do with myself. And Claudio literally called me on the phone landline and, uh, and said, Hey, the company's bankrupt and I dying of cancer. And do you know anybody who would buy it? <laughs> oh my gosh. And, and you're I like, got off the phone that, no, actually, so, so I, I, it's funny, I got off the phone and I called Andy Hording, Um and I said, oh, my God, it's just devastating. You know, Claudio's dying, and, I mean, we were both just heartbroken, and said, God, and he's trying to sell, you know, Silka, but it's bankrupt. It's just a brand, and, my God, you've got a million companies making these beautiful, you know, like, who's going to go buy Silka when, you know, you can buy a Lasagne pump for $49 that looks just like a Silka pump because it is exactly a copy of a silk bump, except it's all plastic on the inside. And, um, you know, I thought, man, this, you know, whoever does that is nuts. And then couldn't sleep for three <laughs> days because I'm like, you know, why can't we just make a valve extender that, like, I don't know, works? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, why why can't we, you know, you just start having ideas. Like, why can't we, hey, you know, I, I had two years prior done all of the Paris-Roubaix development for Zip and the tire testing and all of that to get the first carbon wheels to win at Roubaix. And and we were developing carbon mountain wheels now as SRAM. And we were learning that tire pressure was just everything. Um, and I'm like, oh my God, you know, I've been hot rotting pumps for three years because the gauges are all wrong. I mean, they're wrong from the factory. You know, they're off by plus or minus five PSI. I mean, they're terrible. Um, and so it started to all kind of click. And I thought, wow, I if anybody's going to do this, it should be me. And so, you know, why not? <laughs> so, so you're in, you're like those, that like three weeks or three, three days to a week or whatever, your, your engineering brain was just going bananas. I'm like, well, wait, this is a problem. Silk could, could fix that if I was up in there. That's crazy. That's super, that's. Yeah. I was just going to say like, what was the one product that you wanted to bring to Silka? Like, was there like the aha moment of like, okay, this is why Ooh. I want to be with Silka. I had experience with uh, all the European mechanics that I'd ever worked with had these Japanese chucks made by Harame, and you you can get them today. 
Um, but you couldn't buy them at the time. You could, nobody imported them. Um, you couldn't even get them in Europe. You had to get them in Japan. And I remember thinking, wow, we, we could just make a Harame chuck, which is like the best chuck on earth. Um, you could probably build a company around that. And then I was like thinking, okay, and if I could just make a pump that's indestructible with a really accurate gauge, I could build a company around that. Um, <clears throat> and, and so, yeah, it was really those two products and, and both those products are still in our lineup today. And, you know, if you go to, a, if you go to the Tour de France and walk the pits, I mean, I, you know, every mechanic and, in inflation object, no matter who makes it there has one of our hero, uh, chucks on it. Um, probably half the teams have silica pumps stashed away. Um, and the other one was the little press on the crack pipe disc adapters. Um, you know, you, they worked, but you had to hold them on, hold them in place. And I just had this vision that there had to be a way to make that, make it that small and stay in place on its own. And, um, and I, it was funny, actually, before I bought the company, had the vision of, you know, you think of how like an arch holds load, right? And like you build the two sides of the arch and then the keystone goes in and then all the load in the arch gets converted into compression in that keystone. And kind of had this vision of like, if I made an arch-shaped gasket, your valve becomes the keystone when you insert it. And so if we could make it a, a parabolic arch that was, it was exposed to air pressure, um, it would actually be self-compensating. So the more, pr- the higher the pressure, the more it squeezes the valve stem. Oh my God. Uh, oh, wow. And so that, we, that was genius. one of the first products we did. And I think it, it, it you know, th- those were fun days because it really was. I mean, we, I remember launching and, and telling people, you know, and you've got these forums like Slow Twitch where all the triathletes hang out and, you know, people are buying them and, you know, they're just going and posting like, oh my God, it actually works, you know? And I thought, wow, we've entered product <laughs> categories where the bar is so low that people are going to the internet literally to just say it works. <laughs> like, oh that's God. pretty cool. <laughs> so, like, one thing that Silka's really known for is, like, their warranties. Like, you you stand yep. behind your products, and, like, people joke all the time that it's the last pump you'll ever need to buy. So did, did, did that start with you, or, or did you, like, take over that pedigree and commit to that that dedication to your products that you took over? Uh, the, the actual warranty started with us. Um, you, you know, one of the things it, just in general, uh, European companies don't tend to have warranty t- t- tend to not use warranty as a, uh, a marketing or a customer interaction like American companies do because there's so many consumer protections under EU law. Right. And so like, if you look at a lot of, and I, you know, I, won't out by name. I've already said too many competitor names, but, but if you go to most <laughs> pump companies and, and you look at like their warranty, it'll say like, you know, in the U S we have a one year warranty and in the EU, we have a two year warranty. And that's because EU requires by law that you have a two year warranty. Right. Uh, but there's a lot of other consumer protections built in. So, you know, a lot of the European companies are building amazing products, but they're not necessarily thinking of like, Oh, let's do a 10 year warranty or whatever. Um, Cause the consumers I think feel so much more, protected you know here in the u.s it's definitely more wild west and so yeah i you know we would go to the wind tunnel for you know two weeks do 100 hours of wind tunnel and break three pumps um and 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 so for me it was like well okay we i've got a silica pump that i've had since i was 15 it's worked forever it's on its second leather gasket in 25 years like 
you know, let's just make that product. And I know that if I can, if I just keep making this product, I can say for, you know, huge warranty because it's like this bomb proof, all metal thing. And, and, and I think, you know, I'm a big believer in constraints. Um, you know, you, you need constraints to force you to be competitive. Right. And so, you know, like if, if for an engineer, you know, you give an engineer unlimited money and what you're going to end up with is, you know, like the F-22 Raptor, right? A project that's unlimited <laughs> over budget and unlimited late and unlimited, you know, doesn't work half the time. And, and, and you know, that like y- you need more better constraints. And then, you know, again, like I know people in that program, like they're solving really hard problems. Um, but a lot of their problem is they're, they're just doing too much because they're not, there's no constraints. You know, I, I've been on teams like that. Oh, let's do this. Oh, what if we did this? Oh, yeah, let's do that too. You know, <laughs> that, like three years later, like there's, you still don't have a product, you know. And, and, uh, and then I've been on the other side of that where, you know, you have these cost, overly cost constrained projects where it's like, I want the best in class version of this thing, but it can't cost more than $10 to make. And you're like, well, that sucks. You know, that's <laughs> so. So my vision initially was I wanted to bring my technical background in engineering materials and kind of modern engineering methods to this category, but do it with sort of this ethos of like, we're building heirloom quality products. And one of the things the warranty does, I think, for the company is in terms of being a constraint is like it forces the product and engineering teams to have discussions around things like that. Well, you know, okay, I want to use an engineered plastic on this part. Okay, well, you know, as a company, we have lifetime warranty against defects, and we have a 10-year warranty on this level of product against everything, right? Fatigue, what, you know, it, is this going to is this going to be a problem? And, um, you know, and, and in most cases, it, it, the, having a warranty constraint like that really forces us to make the, the better, technically better decision. Um, and so the cover, I, I, part of my job is to give my engineers and my product team the cover to say, you know what, if it's an extra dollar of cost, I'll, you, you don't have to answer to me. You know, I am never going to roll into anybody's office and scream at them for being over budget if they're over budget for the right reasons. Um, and that's, yeah. I, and I, that's why I, I hope it I love about like your products and I don't want this to sound like an infomercial for Silka, but I'm like the type of person that I would rather spend three times as much and then it lasts 10 times as long. Mm. Um, and you, I, you know, we focused a lot on pumps. That's what kind of Silka is known for. But I, before I bought my Silka pump, I literally went through like three of them and now I don't even have to like worry about it. And I don't even like, that's just me. If you're like mm. a bike shop or you know, you're biking a ton and traveling like that's that's a huge difference. But it's not just your pumps like your bottle cages. Something as simple as a bottle cage has. What's your warranty on bottle cages? Is it 25 years? 25 years. Like it's literally (laughs) the last bottle cage you need. The only reason you're going to buy more is because you're going to buy a new bike and put not take it off your other one. I I compare Silka to like, you know, for all the clothes gurus out there you know it's like the lululemon of bike products because you know you buy a lululemon pair of leggings yeah they're maybe like 130 dollars but they're going to last you so many years compared to the target ones that are going to last you a few months 
Yeah. So I, I really, it's interesting to hear your like mentality behind that of like, you literally tell your engineers, like, it's okay if it's more expensive, which is literally opposite of most (laughs) consumer products. Like, yeah, like I said, I've been really fortunate in my career to kind of come up in through a bunch, you know, car racing, it's like money's no object. You know, I always said that the, the number one business objective of an auto racing team is to take a giant pile of money and burn it to the ground in exactly <laughs> 12 months. Right. <laughs> right. Um, you know, I've worked in government projects where like, that's the same thing. You know, we've got this huge amount of money and we've got to use it all or we won't get the same amount next year. Um, but yeah, there, you know, there's always cost constraints. Um, and, and I think the thing that I hope that we've broken in the category, and I, you know, every time we launch a product, there's the whole internet just loses its mind about what it costs. But um, <laughs> you know, there are a lot of problems out there, like that can be solved. For, like we have the solution; it just costs takes a little bit of extra money. And you know, to me, that just seems like, gosh, if if I can make something last twenty years, you know, I I would love to sell you, you know, a pump every year. Right. But I really would hate to sell you a pump every year because it's breaking, um, you know, like th- that's I don't know, that, that kind of sucks. So for me, it's, you know, think of all the categories we've gone into lubricants and things like that, where it's like, OK, we like a lot of people know the right answer. They're just choosing not to do it because they're scared to spend the money because they don't believe the customers will be willing to spend the money. And, you know, I come at it from the other end of. You know, I think if, if we can help educate the customers as to what some of these solutions are um, and, and how much better things can be, in most cases, the, the money's not the issue. You know, I would say, like, you know, price and value don't, aren't, aren't the same thing. Right? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, you know, it's yeah. like to your, your Lululemon analogy, right? I mean, yeah, they're more expensive, but, you know, you can make a heck of an argument that it's better value. I mean, it's cycling clothing is the same way, right? It, you know, people I know, you spent what on shorts? <laughs> Yeah. Like, oh yeah. my God, that's the best money, you know. Like you know, I I'm like my I have weird narrow feet with high arches, and you know, yeah, I have like the thousand dollar custom shoes, and people, I can't believe you spent that on the shoes. So like, are you you kidding? I I would spend twice that on the shoes for the results that I've achieved, and I'd be thrilled. You know, that's the best money I've spent. And then there's, you know, yeah, I could spend a hundred dollars on shoes that make my feet, you know, ache. 15 minutes into a ride and then I hate my life for the next five hours. Like there's no value in that, right? That's low yeah. price, but yeah. the value proposition is terrible. What, you know? One of the quotes you have on your website is that ultimately we believe that perfection can be found and sometimes created in the details of everything that any of us do. Our commitment to you, we will continue that pursuit of perfection in everything we do. Obviously you guys take a lot of pride in your products. You take a lot of time building these and putting your whole heart into it. What does, I guess, the future of perfection for Silco look like in your eyes? Oh, gosh. I mean, for me, it's it's really expanding the mindset into, into new categories. You know, I, I think we've, you know, we've kind of moved from the pumps and some of the hard goods and tools. Um, you know, we've done a lot the last couple of years with lubricants. Um, and my, my true, you know, strategy is like we will not enter a category where we can't show up on day one with like the best technology. Um, and I think if we're doing our jobs right, we can force the industry to change with us. And so, you know, I think of like, you know, we, 
we developed this bar tape technology and brought it to market. And, you know, and I get it. The whole world is like, oh, my God, we don't need another bar tape. And we definitely don't need a $50 bar tape. Um, but then, you know, people start testing it. And, you know, Tour Magazine does like seven lab tests. And, you know, if a 25 brand shootout were number one by a mile, you know, in that. So, you know, it, it's it's validating to me that like, hey, we you know, we didn't just like roll into China and be like, all right, I need 12 colors of bar tape from the cheapest factory. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, and, and selfishly, and this is totally selfish. Like I, I love technology and I love that people who do amazing things with technology generally aren't getting much credit for it. And they're dying to talk to somebody, right? I mean, you know, like our bar tape technology <laughs> is built around the, the, super high rebound foam that was developed for the two-hour marathon shoe by Nike. Oh. And so Nike's getting all the credit in the world. And I guarantee you, when I call and talk to the chemical guys who invented the foam, like, they're thrilled. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, hey, they're you guys like, want to do a new project? It. You know, I, th- yeah. And I mean, it's like, you know, we, we did the, the, our new wax with the graphene in it. You know, I literally called the lab at the University of Manchester that discovered graphene and won a Nobel Prize for discovering graphene was like, hey, I really just want to know what you guys know. And I will come there if you're willing to talk to me and I want to do a project. And, you know, I think people are, you know, I know my kids always laugh at me about it, but they're shocked that, you know, there was like one phone call. They're like, oh, absolutely. Let's do it. This sounds amazing. And, you know, (laughs) so you tell the story in hindsight and it's like, oh, you know, I, I mean, someone the other day was like, wow, you know, you must just have some business savvy to be able to put these deals together. I'm like, no, like that was one phone call, you know, like one nerd talking to another nerd. <laughs> and, I love it. You know, like, that's so funny. I just think that's, I don't know. There's just something about that to me that like, it, it's the ultimate rush. You know, you can call literally and talk to the person who knows the most about that topic in the world. And that person will talk to you. And oh, I yeah. guarantee if you, you, treat it right they'll work with you and and so you know for me it's like oh my god i mean this is it's like the ultimate playground you know it'd be like you know like if you were into movies and you could just like call up a movie star and like do a little do a film with them you know it like that's the equivalent for me like like oh wow i can call another nerd and like do a project or a product (laughs) like oh man it doesn't it doesn't get any better than that uh you you mentioned yeah, we'll get we'll definitely get into the chain chain lube side of things, but you also mentioned like the bar tape. Th- th- these are like small things that again you guys are rolling out and like they are seriously a game changer. I was literally on at, when I was down at Mid South, somebody saw my bar tape on my tape and I I it's like it's thicker for for like gravel, you get more cushion there. And they're like, what, what kind of bar tape is that? And they like felt it. (laughs) Like they like literally while we were riding, like leaned over and like, I was like, yeah, touch it. It's awesome. Like, it's really good. And they're like, I'm getting some of that. Cause I mean, it's like something so small of like taking another technology and it really does make a difference. If you're riding a hundred miles or 150 miles, 200 miles, like literally like that little buzz, that tiny little change, like that's your contact point. It's the same as like, why do you buy a good pad in your cycling shorts? Yeah. That's a contact point. Yeah. Your other major contact points are your hands. And if you can take a little tiny extra amount of buzz, if it's 10% extra, extra buzz out, like that's a huge difference over hundreds of miles, especially on gravel. So 
Um, yeah, no joke on on the bar tape. It literally somebody wanted to touch it at mid south. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, for very very good job on on the bar tape. So, um, let's go ahead and get into some technical questions. Kind of more technical of like how people can be more prepared for going into a race. Um, we one did this. We did this with uh, Frank Pike, who is a nutritional coach, all, overall coach, and it was really fun and really informative. So now I'm excited to like dive deep into this technical stuff. Yeah. So <laughs> one, one thing that you guys sponsor is kind of the marginal gains podcast and your, your YouTube, you talk about marginal gains a lot. Uh, for those that don't know what marginal gains are, it's kind of like little things that you can do. Sometimes the things they test out are crazy expensive things, but some things are just like things you're already doing that you can do better. And it makes a huge difference over a, a long race or even a short race. Like the, it's little things you can be doing uh, to be making a difference. So um, Gravel Worlds uh, coming up here in August. You, you guys are a sponsor of Gravel Worlds. And um, one question we get asked all the time is like chain, like how do I take care of my chain? Our, our gravel is super dusty um, if it's dry, which I think we've had two wet years ever. Um, August is usually really dry. So now me saying that it's going to be a mud year. Um, <laughs> but what, so what would you be your well, recommendation? You've done it now. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've already jinxed yeah. it. I'm ready for Way a wet year. We need to have one. We need oh, to have a wet man. year. <laughs> so, uh, what, what would be your best chain lube <clears throat> strategy for gravel worlds? Yeah. So, you know, the, the kind of pinnacle of chain technology, lubricant technology right now is wax. Um, which is a little bit funny because back in the seventies, the pinnacle of chain lubricant was wax. <laughs> <laughs> and if you were in aerospace, like uh, working on B-17 bombers in the 40s, the pinnacle of chain lubrication was also wax. Um, <laughs> it's it's literally a technology that we have discovered and forgotten over and over and over again. Um, what makes today different is that we have both the hot melt waxes, right, which is what it was up until now. I mean, you literally melt the wax, you put the chain in it, um, you know, it's there's effort there, right? That's a commitment. Um, what's different about now is that there are now emulsified drip waxes that will penetrate the chain, but still work almost as well. Mm. Um, you know, and I think, you know, we talk about Silk as a technology company, right? I mean, the, the, the thing that's changed there, and I will, this is one I will step up and take credit for, because you can talk to Adam Karen at Zero Friction, and he was the first to say it. We, we spent two years trying to figure out how to make an emulsified wax penetrate the chain and when we did it oh, holy heck i mean it changed everything <laughs> like we we went to the top of the charts for low friction for wear um for longevity now it still doesn't quite match hot melt wax right so like if i were doing gravel worlds i would 1000 percent hot melt wax my chain um it's the fastest the cleanest and the longest lasting lubricant for a chain it, in existence um and, you know, not, I'm not making this a Silka plug. Like, we make the stuff. Molten Speedwax makes the stuff. Um, there's ones Runaway, or not Runaway, but something Hot Tub makes. You know, they, like, I'll name my competitors. Like, there's people making <laughs> hot melt wax. Um, you know, ours is generally tested as the best, but, you know, the, there's a bunch of them out there. There's all, But there's also people. I mean, our super secret really upended that market, and you had a number of companies go and reformulate. Because, you know, it's the... the dirty secret of these chemical type things, right? Is like, I can buy my competitor's product and reverse engineer it. Um, 
And so pretty quickly, we had competitors in the drip wax space. Um, and so right now, you've got excellent products, you know, like the Ceramic Speed UFO drip product is phenomenal. Um, Fetto Mariposa has a, a drip, uh, sun, or, or like an organic sunflower-based wax that's really good. Um, you know, so you don't have to buy it from me, but if you haven't tried waxing, like truly, it's the best riding experience uh, lubricant. It, and if the lower friction and the longer lasting doesn't do it for you, the best thing really is that it it's totally clean. You know, like I can walk up to my bike and grab the chain and run it through my fingers and there's like almost nothing there. Um, so, you know, in terms of frictional performance, you know, if you're going from a, a, a terrible lube, and I will name names on this, you know, the, the, the bike industry got into this whole like wet and dry lube thing and dry lubes are typically a PTFE powder in a highly volatile, quick flashing solvent, right? And so you've got like, you know, white lightning is, is a toxic PTFE powder in pentane, right? So I always say it's like, you know, it, for my thinking, it, it's like an environmental hand grenade. You know, here's this thing that's like five times more powerful than a green, you know, than CO2 as a greenhouse gas um, with this other thing that's a toxic forever cancer-causing chemical, and you're going to put it on your chain basically every day because it doesn't last very long, you know, and, there, and there's a whole industry of products built around that. And so um, if you look at the top test labs independently worldwide, like zero friction, um, they won't even test dry lubes because one, they, they, are, they don't work well, <laughs> um, but two, they're just terrible. Um, so, you know, buy from I my competitors, no but don't buy the environmentally terrible stuff. You know, if you look at the back of the bottle and it's got like seven warnings on it, um, that's probably bad. <laughs> but it also, if you look at the independent data, it's slow. I mean, you know, like standard white lightning is like 10 watts of loss in a 250 watt input. And that's our a hot melt, that's a lot. which is a lot. For, and our hot for, melt for in one that's, factor, you're like, you're yeah. literally just talking chain efficiency to be 10 oh, and, watts in one factor. That's a lot. And then you look at the life, like, you know, when people test it for chain life, it's, you know, 2000 miles, right? And you, you know, we're getting almost infinite life out of hot wax chains. Um, but yeah, you know, a, a, a Silka hot melt or super secret wax chain is going to be sub four watts of loss. So you're talking six watts. You know, what, what's that comparable to? You know, we see like the super fancy ceramic oversized pulley system probably saves you one and a half to maybe 1.8 if you buy the, the bestest, most expensivest um, oversized pulley system on the market. You're still sub two watts. Um, for call it a thousand bucks and, and, oh my God, the wrong chain loop can cost you, you know, three, four times that. So I, I've started using the hot wax cause of you guys, um, which it is a little bit of a, more work, but it remarkably is so much better on, on like cleaning it, like the longevity of it. But what, so once I wax my chain, how do I take care of as long to get as much longevity out of because it is it is more work you got to take the chain off you got to mm. clean it really well uh you, then you you know heat up the wax do all do all that part of it so it is more work than just cleaning your chain and you yep. know pedaling yeah, backwards sure. uh but so then once you have it on there how do you take what's the best way to take care of it and make it last as long as possible yeah, so the couple options you know with with our product we our hot melt and emulsified drip work as a system and so you know you can um you know you can every couple hundred k hose your chain off 
um, knock the water out of it, and then apply our emulsified drip over top of it. And that will replenish, you know, not 100%, but it'll replenish a pretty high percentage of what's been purged out. Um, you know, one of the, the real advantages of wax is that because it's a solid, um, it purges out over time. And, and as it purges out, it takes any dirt that's gotten in there or dirt that's on the surface, and it pushes that out with it, right? So it's sort of like... Wow you know, a wound bleeding. It's carrying away the bad, the bad stuff. That's so interesting. Um, but that does need to be replenished. And so, you know, you can knock um, knock the excess off of it. And, you know, like when I do it, I probably, I don't know, every 150, 200K, I'll just throw some super secret over top of it. And then about every 1,000K or so, I'll pull it in and re-hot wax it. Um, the beauty of the hot wax is that it's not attacked by solvents. I mean, you could literally like pour mineral spirits or acetone or any degreaser on your hot wax chain and the chain doesn't care. I mean, chain's like, what, please? You know, this. <laughs> the best degreaser or wax remover for hot wax is boiling water. Hmm. So again, it's kind of, for me, it's like another environmental piece of the puzzle that like, instead of buying this expensive um, toxic degreaser, you can literally boil water, throw the chain in, all the wax and the dirt falls out, and then you can throw it, still wet, throw it into your hot wax, and the water that's in it will boil out, and 10 minutes later, your chain's waxed again, um, and you're ready to go. I love wow. it. Before we switch to, we're going to go to tire pressure after this, the other really cool thing with your hot wax is you you designed your packaging to be to be the hot wax bag, so you can literally just take the bag that it comes in, so you don't need to like get a crock pot or a... a pressure cooker or whatever you can literally take the bag and put it in warm water and it melts itself like and then you it has resealable so you don't you can reseal it like that's just a huge waste thing that you don't have to like completely ruin a crock pot i i did i found a three dollar old crock pot from goodwill but uh but, but yeah it also like, makes it so genius. much easier oh, it yeah, makes it genius. so much easier and like just it's erasing those hard to do steps yeah genius like completely love that so you guys have collected data um, all across the board on how important tire pressure is. Can you tell us a little bit about the difference between tubes and tubeless and dialing your tire pressure there with the Silka tire pressure calculator? Yeah, so tubes versus tubeless from a, a tire pressure, uh, I'm trying to think of how the, the easiest way to explain this. If you think of the tire is like a suspension, right? Your tire is kind of like a suspension fork, right? And so you've got the travel um, of the suspension, which is the compression of the tire. And so in this model, the tire pressure is the spring, is this, or the sp and controls the spring rate of the suspension. And then the tire construction and casing is the damper. And in the case of a tire, we want the l we want zero damping, right? Because damping is a loss to heat. You know, you're you're converting uh, movement, uh, energy into, into heat losses. And of course, heat isn't helping us go faster. And so one of the beauties of tubeless is that we're able to make not all of them, but the best ones, we're able to make tires with fewer losses, you know, what the engineers would call hysteresis. Um, and, you know, hysteresis is essentially just a measurement of the damping, you know, like you, you know, it, you push it down. I, I always use the analogy of the memory foam mattress commercial, you know, you see where like they push the hand into the mattress and they pull the hand out and the handprint is still there and it comes back slowly. That's a huge damping coefficient, like a 0.8. Like if you made a tire out of that, you could barely roll because <laughs> yeah. you're losing so much energy um, to damping. 
And so what you want is, you know, a perfect spring that no matter how hard you hit the tire, the tire can bounce back as quickly as you can, you know, pull the object away. Um, and of course, that's not possible. Everything has these frictional losses and these internal hysteretic losses. But um, we're aiming for low damping. Well, the way to get to low damping is thinner, lighter. Um, you know, it's back to our, our, our bar tape foam. You know, like that was the invention there was this ultra low hysteresis foam because um, foams tend to be pretty high damping. And so when you introduce a tube, you've introduced really two things. You now have the tube that has its own hysteresis and damping, but you also now have an interface where you've got that thing that has damping con- touching this other thing that has damping. And so when they move, you get micro movements in the interface, right? And so you've basically like added two new types of hysteresis to the system, um, which is where, you know, going to like a really thin latex tube um, is way better than a butyl tube. But ultimately, if you can go, these modern thin walled tubeless tires are, you know, we're currently, we probably have a dozen tires that are faster tubeless than with latex tubes. Any tire is faster tubeless than with a butyl tube. Um, and as the tubes, as you can imagine, get thicker and heavier, they just get worse. So, you know, if you've ever bought or thought about buying like a thorn, quote unquote thorn proof tube or whatever, oh my God, you might as well you know, just punch yourself in the face now um, over the losses that, that you're going to experience. So, so the goal in tuning the tire pressure, right, is to, you know, step one, buy the lowest hysteresis, lowest rolling resistance tire you can find. Um, and then two, you want to run it at the optimal pressure for the optimal spring rate. And what our ti- our calculator does is it takes, you know, we, you know, we've, we've got, it's now over 5,000 data points. But, you know, for years, I would go and do all the Paris-Roubaix tire pressures for a number of the teams, you know, uh, uh, got CSC and Saxo Bank and Quick Step and uh, EF and Canada, I know, you name it, we've probably worked with them. Um, and so it, it hit me a couple of years ago, like, you know, my God, we're, we are sitting on the world's largest tire pressure optimization data set. You know, I've got the rider weight, I've got the weight distribution, I've got the tire width, and I've got the surface. Nobody's got that. And so we thought, why don't we write an algorithm that will essentially create like lines of interpolation. Um, you know, I've got 5,000 data points, but of course that's not the infinite data points that you need. But, you know, heck, if you're, you know, 180 pound system weight, I I have probably 20 data points across three surfaces there. I can interpolate the gaps, you know. Um, and so we started doing that. And, and the way the interpolation works is it essentially tries to bridge those gaps while maintaining equivalent uh, tire spring weight, spring rate to weight. Um, and so when you use our calculator, you're really optimizing for speed. Um, but there are some assumptions to make. And the big assumption is that you're, you're using a pretty efficient tire. Um, the, the other thing that's interesting to think about there is um, this thing that happens is like static um, spring rate and dynamic spring rate. And the best way to think of this would be um, – you know, like if you ever experienced like a packing on your suspension fork, like you hit washboard and it starts to pack down. Yep. Like like that's a dynamic spring rate problem, right? Um, that's the equivalent of like our memory foam mattress. Like if you started punching it like a punching bag, you essentially would just compact it down until it was like a rigid piece of plastic because you're impacting it and then you're hitting it again before it can ever come back. And that's 
that's one of the reasons why crappy tires and heavy inner tubes feel so terrible and beat you up so badly is that you're capable and particularly on gravel of these these repetitive higher frequency impacts the the surface is impacting the tire while it's still in a compression state because it just can't respond quickly enough and so your dynamic stiffness is much much higher than your static stiffness would suggest that it should be um, and so that's why you know with our calculator we always try to have like a million caveats of like well you know if if you're a pro athlete and you know what you're doing and you're on this surface, you know, and, and, and this really works, but you know, people will call and say, Oh, I tried to do that on my commuter and this and that, and that, I think that's the wrong pressure. Like, yeah, that probably is the wrong pressure for you. <laughs> um, but, but it's fun that the last couple of years we've really started working with a lot of gravel athletes. And so, um, you know, that it, it's a little bit like AI, except that maybe it's more hive mind you know yeah. <laughs> you know we're pulling in like the alexi vermulen and adam Roberge and you know all these th- these great athletes um and we're just adding their their data over and over again and so the more of that that happens the smarter the data set gets uh, which yeah. to me is pretty exciting you know if you use it a year from now it'll be better than it is today um and the cool thing about it is it's a free service yeah. right it's right on the home page at the top of the home yeah page. yeah no, it's absolutely free yeah, I, I was actually, um, when rolling up to Mid-South, I happened to just park right next to the Silka truck and Travis. And uh, when I was down at Mid-South, uh, Travis and Phil were parked right next to us in the Silka truck there. And he was like, uh, Travis said, oh, do you have your tire pressure dialed in? And I was like, oh, I think I think so. It's kind of like what I've always done. You know, I don't, I don't know. And he's like, oh, here, I have the calculator pulled up. And y- you have, like this is the most detailed calculator I've ever seen. Like, yeah, you've seen the ones where it's like your weight and your tire size. And that's usually it. You can put in like, it has like different types of gravel rating. Like, so if it's super chunky gravel or like hero gravel, like here in, in Lincoln, you can change that. Or if you're on like, uh, on uh, like Perry Roubaix, like there's literally, you can change the settings on cobbles. So, uh, it was fascinating. And I will say I had one of the best, finishing times i've ever had so we'll we'll <laughs> we'll go, go. Did, we'll, we'll get it we'll chalk it up to yeah the entire I'll, I'll ask did it did it tell you to go down or up from it, where you it were? had me go down so um yeah and then i used your new like digital uh calculator he let me borrow it out of the truck and i i got it to the 10th 10th of a tire pressure perfect <laughs> yeah. and so that that was really cool yeah. i felt really cool i was like oh i got the perfect tire pressure going into this but no it was it's really cool oh, and oh. we do get asked that all the time um so it's it's awesome to have that that tool there where i can just send them of like hey here's your tire pressure whether you're riding you know, 32s or you're riding 55 C tires. It's so pretty, pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. The, the thing that people don't think about with, you know, I, I grew up with like more is better, right? <laughs> you know, there's, there's that old school racing mentality, you know, like, Ooh, some is good. More is better. Um, but something like tire pressure, almost all these optimizations, um, they don't work like that. You know, it's like, if you plot the effi- tire efficiency with pressure, you're, your curve looks kind of like a V like you get faster and the rolling resistance goes down and down and down and then it breaks and then it comes up again. Um, And one of the things that's really interesting about that is it's pretty asymmetric in the way that it breaks so that it's coming down quite shallowly and it goes back up quite steeply. And so, you know, that's, you know, one of my favorite, I love solving these like tricky little math problems, but it's one of those like, 
like it's best to be perfect, but if you're going to err, always err low. Because erring high, you know, 5 PSI high might be 5 watts and 5 PSI low might be 1 watt. Interesting. Um, uh, and so that's one that point. we up to a up certain, to a certain point. point. Yeah. Um, up to a certain point. And and it's the erring on the low side and our calculator and and there's a phone app for our calculator too if you want to have it with you. It's actually a little bit easier to use, I think, than the computer. But um, the other thing it does is it has a um, pinch flat slash rim impact calculator and it essentially does like an energy calculation to say like, hey, you're you're a little bit heavy for that size tire on that surface. You know, like if you said, I want to ride 25s, uh, you know, at uh, on class three gravel, you know, at 200 pounds, it, it's going to throw a flag and say, hey, you should think about, you know, 38s or you know, whatever the other, or you're going to have to run at a much higher pressure. Um, but yeah, it is one of those things, you know, it's ideally you want to, you know, we say there's maximize, minimize, and optimize. Um, and I think the bicycle industry has sold us all these things as being maximize and minimize, right? Like minimize weight, maximize stiffness. It, that's not really true. Um, most of these are actually optimized problems. Like you, there is too stiff, right? Like you, if that's not good. And it's actually too stiff is a lot slower um, than just right. But less stiff is not nearly as slow as too stiff. Um, so there's, and that's true with your tires, right? So there's just a lot of, you know, one of the things we hope to do with marginal gains, and honestly, my brand in general, is just get people thinking a little bit outside the kind of the typical industry marketing box of, you know, some is good, more is better. I love <laughs> less it. Less is good. I love Le it. Even less is better. Um, not always true. Well, so much preparation goes to into any race or any ride that you're going to do. Um, and there's so many aspects that go into it. Like you've said, if you were to race now, I mean, you raced before gravel was as big as it now as it is now. But if you were to race something like Gravel Worlds or Unbound or Mid-South, how would you prepare for your race? Oh, gosh. Um, I would start by, you know, training, <laughs> which I don't <laughs> Which would be hard. Um, yeah, I think, you know, you guys know Travis. Um, you know, I think his podcast or his YouTube uh, show, uh, Road to Emporia, is in a way probably kind of an extension of um, – it, it, it's definitely how he would do it, but with a lot of input from how I would do it. And, uh, you know, for me, it's all about really, you know, kind of taking like a, a – a Pareto analysis of things, you know, right? So like, okay, here's the 50 factors. Let's start with the most important and come down. And, you know, obviously, you know, bike fit is number one, you know, like, you know, none of the stuff, none of the marginal gains we preach mean anything if you don't fit on your bike or, you know, your shoes make your feet hurt or, you know, you can't stand like to sit on your saddle or, you know, so like you take care of the big stuff. Um, but then really, you know, you, you want to be as, as kind of, arrow and comfort optimized as possible um, with a real focus on your tire uh, efficiency and then drivetrain efficiency. Um, and so I would, I would think it through like that and, you know, not saying go out and buy an arrow gravel bike. Um, but, you know, all those things really do matter. And, 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 you know, we see in Travis's podcast, like, you know, we, we went with uh, Dylan Johnson to the wind tunnel and did a bunch of gravel wind tunnel. And, you know, and it's, it's, it's fun because people say things like, oh, wow, you know, you, you tested Dylan at 40K an hour in the wind tunnel, but, you know, nobody rides their gravel bike that fast. And so, 
Yeah, not necessarily, but you definitely will go 20K an hour into a 20K an hour headwind. And that's a 40 kilometer an hour airspeed, which is exactly what we're testing in the wind tunnel. Um, you know, and let me tell you, if you're doing 20 kilometers an hour into that headwind at, you know, 400 watts, you know, you're saving something like 14, 15 minutes an hour. That's um, If you can get air right. Like if, you know, I mean, that's one of the things that'll be interesting with them taking the aero bars away in a lot of the events this year like with was it lifetime or whatever yeah and unbound um, i think unbound you know, like, is the only one currently yeah um oh, is it the only okay. and it's, so, uh, it's but, but unbound I mean, only the pro category yeah only the pros yeah yeah but i mean we've we've done some quick modeling on that and i mean it it could easily depending on how the the wind blows i mean for the um for the top pros it's probably half an hour but like if if you took aero bars away from like the rest of us i mean it's an hour plus Right. Because you think of a lot of these aero savings are sort of a percentage of time. Mm-hmm. And so those of us who are slow are out there a whole lot longer. Um, that's, that's interesting. I didn't and so that even time think really... of the aero bars as far as like uh, I knew I thought of it on like the safety side or what they were trying to accomplish. But like the, to finish for the pros to finish sub 10, sub 10 hours at, at Unbound 200 is like a massive deal. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if like in that in last year, what they like broke. I think there had been like five ever or some or three ever, and there was like mm-hmm. fifteen last year. So I wonder if that completely changes yeah. the game from that one change. I hadn't even thought about that. That's fascinating. Yeah. Oh, it's going to be huge. I mean, we—I'll tell you with—and it's public knowledge now. You can read it on the blog on our website, and Travis's video covers it. But um, yeah, for Dylan, in a fifty-kilometer-an-hour airspeed, right? So that's the equivalent of you know, you call it what. 15 miles an hour with a, you know, 15 mile an hour headwind, um, which, which happens, right? I mean, there's consistently yep. winds like that at Unbound. Um, the difference between hoods and the aero bars is 120 watts. Oh, my gosh. Jeez. That's massive. And, <laughs> and, and so, you know, that's one of those when people talk about, like, how much does aero matter? Like, well, how much does 120 watts matter? Because, you know, if, if you're, you know, if you're kind of like, near your threshold and i come came and said like you know hey can you find me another 120 watts i think i know what the answer is well especially because um, in, in those like watts are exponential too it's not like it yeah if you're sitting at 300 and add 150 it, it's not like you're adding it by a third it's substantially more than that so that's that's yeah. really fascinating i hadn't i love i'm glad we had this conversation because it's opening <laughs> up my mind yeah. to different it, ideas that i hadn't had yeah, it, it's the burn. The burn with aerodynamics, right, is that, you know, we, we talk about, you know, like this rolling resistance is an asymmetric problem, but it, it's kind of linear. Um, but the aero problem is, is, like you said, exponential, but it's the power is, is one exponent further, right? So, you know, you double your speed is four times the aero drag, but it requires eight times the power to overcome. Oh, my gosh. That's crazy. And so that's why, you know, like as you go faster, you start like the curve is just bending steeper. And eventually, you know, they're just there are no more watts to cover that. I mean, it's literally like the E equals MC squared light speed formula, but way slower on bikes. (laughs) But cubed. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You say power is power is a function of the cube of speed. Wow. Um, That's and 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 that's that's brutal. (laughs) But but if if we can change your your cda your arrow um you know it, it it as you try to go faster those numbers become huge and uh it, you know and, and then i think within that i think 
Um, and we've been doing this with Roubaix for years, but, you know, really pay attention to the wind and your map and build that into your race strategy. Um, you know, if I look at a, a, a you know, at a course like Roubaix, right, it kind of goes south to north and the cobbles are all pretty much north-south. And then it's a lot of road sections that are kind of like either diagonal or, or more east-west. And, you know, every year, I mean, we will develop with teams like some aero and race strategies around uh, what the wind is going to be, and, and you'll play it up on that. You know, if um, if there's really brutal east-west winds, um, then there's there's really kind of no sense attacking in the uh, in the cobbled sections because you're going to put out these huge efforts to get a gap, and then you're going to turn into a 30 mile an hour headwind, and then um, it's all gone. Where a small group has no advantage, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and so I, I think about that a lot with you know events like like yours, where you know oh my god I'm going to be out there all day. Well. You know, if I can, if I can get really arrow in that twenty mile an hour headwind and save myself fifteen minutes, like I'm going to be really diligent. I'm going to make a time trial out of that section, especially if I know I'm going to take a left turn at the end of it and have a cross tailwind for the next twenty miles, and then I can do I can screw around with my other stuff. Wow! You know, I can muck with my my you know I can eat a bar or you know yeah. whatever. It's like. Y- y- you know, you really have to build that into the strategy. And, and I think as you start to kind of hone the thought process down, you, you know, you're you're saving tens of minutes across different places. That's and then, crazy. you know, yeah, you turn into that section where you've got a, you know, 20 mile an hour tailwind now. And, um, you know, in a section like that, you know, you, you never have a true tailwind, right? If you have a 20 mile an hour tailwind, you're going to ride 25 miles an hour in it. So you're going to have a five mile equivalent airspeed headwind. But in that regime, your forces against you are, are heavily dominated now by your rolling resistance, right? And so in a, in a situation like that, like, you know, rest your hands, you know, twist your neck around, like, like you know, kind of stretch a little bit and then really pay attention to your line because you're now in a, in a, a regime of the course that's heavily rolling resistance dominated and only, you know, marginally aero uh, intense. And so, you know, it's one of the things we talk – we talk with our pros about that a lot, but, you know, like I said, for particularly on the aero side, um, you know, it, it is relative to time on course. And so the longer you're going to be out there, the more you have to gain with some of these, uh, you know, some of these thought process, processes or, or methodologies. Wow. Um, so really quickly, I know a lot of the, the conversations we've had here can seem really expensive for some people, but there's, there are changes you can make for essentially nothing. So what are some changes like really quickly that you would change that are free that are very, very low cost? Number one, clean your bike. (laughs) Like I know there's going to be some cost in that. Right. But I mean, clean bike is, is by far and away a faster bike. Um, It's also going to minimize potential problems on course um you know lube your chain is nearly free and and you know even if it's wet lube or dry lube or whatever anything is better than nothing um and and you know an, an unlube chain can be 30 watts right where even a terrible lube is 10 watts of loss you know so um you know lube your chain um then i it's paying attention you know some of the details like you know your body position you know like there's a position we call arrow hoods where it's hands on the hoods and then flatten your forearms to the, to be parallel with the ground. 
and that'll flatten your back. That'll put your torso in the same position you would be in the drops, but you're actually faster than you are in the drops because you don't have all that forearm exposed, right? The forearm is now horizontal. Uh, position like that can save 30 watts over elbows straight um, wow. on the drops, and that's absolutely free. Wow. Um, you know, zip your jersey uh, is free, and it really makes a big difference. Um, let's say in the realm of things you can do that you can spend money on that you would spend money on anyway. Um, the biggest one is like buy tighter clothing. Um, and I know for some of us, myself in particular, as we get older and we get like a belly, that's really, <laughs> it's just like, Ooh, I don't, I don't like my tighter clothing. Um, but it's massive. I mean, it, it's, you, you could save 20, 30 Watts, um, in these windier, you know, 40 to 50 kilometer an hour, um, uh, airspeed type situations just by wearing one size smaller clothing that's less wrinkly. Interesting. Um, you know, so there's a ton. And, and then in the realm of really cheap things you can do, um, you know, I'm always amazed. And, and we have a video on the website we did with Dylan on this, but aero socks, um, aero socks just work. And there's a ton of companies that make them. Um, it's so stupid. I like hate myself for say, saying that and promoting the product. But uh, <clears throat> I mean, you, I think with Dylan, we found like the Silka Aero Sock was a five watt savings and the, the um, tall compression Lycra Sock that his sponsor uh, made was like a 10 watt savings. That's crazy. I mean, 10 watts from socks. Like you're going to wear socks anyway, you know. Um, Fascinating. Yeah. And then I would say, uh, you know, the next best thing would be just be really do a lot of research about your tire selection because two tires that look the same can be 20, 30 watts difference um, between them. And so there are websites. BicycleRollingResistance.com is a great neutral third-party place you can go and do research, um, you know, and definitely buy tires that are faster than ones that are slower, um, and you will save, I mean, you know, you'd save something – couple minutes per hour incredible um, so yeah it's just maybe even more than it's that. just all these little things you can do to to make a difference for your success and that could be your success or failure of an event so uh, well thank you so much josh for being on the podcast uh you're this was kind of a longer one than normal but it felt like really fast because i love all this technical data so thank you so much for for all of that uh but before we go uh sophia always has one last question yes Thank you, Josh. You've been very informative, and especially for me, I'm not a very technical person, so I learned a lot about this podcast, and I imagine everyone else who's listening who will as well. Um, so the last question is, what does the Gravel family mean to you? I, for me, I think I, I'll expand it to cycling family. Um, something I tell my kids, like, your cycling family, y you can go anywhere in the world and find people, um, you know, like-minded, interested, adventurous uh, people that, that you can connect with and, and kind of become fast friends with and you can uh, see places you never would have seen. Um, yeah, that's, you know, I think it's, it, it's maybe, it means global family, <laughs> maybe even more than gravel family. But I think, I think Gravel Family specifically is um, going to amazing places with amazing people and seeing parts of the country that I never would have seen, right? And um, and finding that there's just amazing people everywhere um, to hang out with. 
So that's Gravel family to me. We love it. Love it. Well, thank you so much, Josh. Uh, we'll, we can't wait to have you in Lincoln and have the whole Silka crew here in Lincoln for Gravel Worlds. And best of luck. We'll see you at a lot of races this year, I'm sure. So yeah. if you ever see a Silka booth I at whatever so. uh, race you're going to, <laughs> check them out. They have a lot of great products in there. Um, but yeah, go give it a go. I'm Sophia. I'm Jason. And I'm Josh. And this has been another episode of the Gravel Family Podcast. We will see you next time. Gravel Family Podcast is a Pirate Cycling League production. Gravel Worlds and Pirate Cycling League are owned and operated by Gravel Adventures LLC, Lincoln, Nebraska. For more information on Gravel Family Podcast, visit www.gravelfamily.bike. For information on Gravel Worlds or Pirate Cycling League, go to www.gravel-worlds.com.